Welcome to Triumph, the show where we discuss everything. Everything, all of it. There's not a single thing that is not on the table. I mean, I can think of like a hundred things, but um, there's a lot of other things. <laughs> Many things. Uh, you could say a multiverse of things. A multiverse of things. A- across the multiverse of things to discuss, we do we do shows, we do movies, we do games. But at the center of it all is stories. That's what we really get excited about is great stories. Hollywood does this interesting thing where sometimes they'll just randomly make a great story and we have to try to figure out why and, and how they managed to do it. Um, and Spider-Verse is, is one of my favorite examples of that. So I was really excited about the sequel. I was also nervous about the sequel for those same reasons. Let's get into it. Daniel, when did you see Across the Spider-Verse? What did you think about Across the Spider-Verse? I, uh, just, just tell me everything. Yeah, I saw it um, just a couple of days ago, uh, three days ago, um, Sunday. Um, and I have to say that uh, it definitely, um, I mean, it, it was just a great. I, I don't know what... Well, I mean, I know quite a bit to say, which we'll get to later on in the episode, but first impressions were uh, just, this is them, the, the animation team in their top form, uh, such a visual treat. Um, I had a blast. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It was fun. It was um, more subversive than I thought it was going to be, you know, especially like Into the Spider-Verse being a film that totally reevaluated a lot of the ideas that it discussed and, and presented Spider-Man in this whole new lens, this very Miles lens. Um, I, I, I didn't know how they were going to do that again. And somehow they, not only have they done it again, but they've peeled back the curtain on all the ways that the first movie did it in the first place. So I don't know if that makes sense, but but let's get into the details of, of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, did you... When, just to be clear, when did you see it exactly? Uh, I saw it, uh, let's see, I believe it's the 11th is when I saw it. Uh, so June 11th. Mm. Yeah. So it was, about, it was about a week ago for me. So you're a little fresher than I am, uh, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, Spider-Verse, you know, across the Spider-Verse, it sits at sort of an interesting place. You know, you and I were talking uh, earlier. It's, it's, a, it's a standalone film in some ways. It's a sequel film in some other ways. It's also the middle part of a trilogy. Is there is there one of these ways in particular that you feel like it works more than the others? Yes. Um, I feel it works really well as the middle part of a trilogy. Um, and I'm I have to say that one thing that definitely left me uh, excited about uh, during the uh, the credits was just excitement, could not wait for the next film. And I think you know you have a good uh, middle part of a trilogy if it just gets you amped and you can't, you're just, you can't wait for the next one. Um, and that yeah. just, more than anything else, um, that's what really uh, stuck in my mind when the credits started rolling uh, was I cannot wait to see um, the second part or the, the final act of this trilogy. Yep. Yep. I know exactly what you mean. And I had, I had this weird experience where I went into the film and I just, because I had totally not thought about it, I was just like, oh yeah, we're going to see Spider-Verse. Like, here we go, tickets. I totally forgot that there was going to be a part two until like the last 20 minutes. And I was like, this is too much to wrap up. Mm-hmm. What are they going to, oh my God, there's going to be a part two. Like I remembered as the film was ending and it crushed me because I realized I wasn't going to get to to soak it all up today uh, or in that moment. Um, 
But of course, then it it makes that final act of the film um, almost even more exciting because you realize how high the stakes are being built and and all the things that are happening at once. And you've got Miguel, you've got the spot, and then you've got uh, spoilers. You've got you've got Earth forty two miles and this new conflict that they're introducing right at the very end. So much. I mean, they managed to do so much. So I do also want to. Just the emotional aspect of the film hit me a lot as well. Did you? I, I definitely cried. I think there's like one and a half points where I, I very clearly remember crying. I don't know if you you had that experience. You know, we like to joke. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not a crier. I don't know. Did you cry, Dan? Uh, no, I did not. I am not really much of a crier. Uh, just in general, um, my wife likes to call me the Vulcan for that reason. Mm. So um, I can definitely. Uh, appreciate a dramatic moment in a film and you know I've you know teared up a few times for sure but I don't think I got that evocation this time around yeah when was that time when you teared up and which Star Trek episode was it <laughs> well it was the inner light uh, next generation no uh, <laughs> that is a really good episode but, um, oh, no uh, man I'm trying to remember the last time um well, I'll tell you yeah. what got me in Spider-Verse was Rio Morales. Yeah. And she was like, at some point, you're going to be in a room and everybody's going to be telling you that you don't belong there. And, you know, you need to... to, to I, I don't remember how she ends the thought, but right there, I was like, oh, I'm gone. Like, I'm like, I, I, I'm sent. That was com that, that completely sent me. And, man, the way that that paid off in the film was so huge. Like, almost as she said it, like, I could see how that was going to tie into the story later. You know, Miles being in a room full of spider people. Mm -hmm. Like, knowing that that was going to be in there from the trailer. Right. Um, some It didn't ruin it for me, though. Like, Rio Morales says, you know, at some point you're going to be in a, a crowded room full of people and they're going to tell you you don't belong. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Like, Miguel's going to come and he's going to tell him this exact thing. And I was in. Like, even though it should have been a little ruined for me, it wasn't because I was ready to see it. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. I think a... Um, a good story when the emotional um, ducks are all in a row. Uh, it doesn't really matter if you know what's going to happen. I mean, there's a reason why people go back and watch and rewatch uh, classic films um, that move them for that reason, because there's, you know, it doesn't matter that you know what's going to happen. You're just, you're so invested. You're so following the emotion in that moment. It just, you can overwhelm you. Well, I, I feel like we glazed over this, but I asked you, you know, do you think it works better as a standalone, a sequel film, or a middle part? And your answer was, it works better as a middle part of a trilogy, right? For sure, yeah. Um, See, I, 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 I feel so weird about it because I think, I think it, I, I almost think that it works as a standalone film. Maybe this is where we might disagree, but the beginning of it did a really good job, I thought, of reintroducing me to Miles, but also introducing me to a Miles who's been Spider-Man for six months, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a different kind of a Spider-Man moment, um, a different kind of a, you know, I would usually, I would say Peter Parker moment. It's a different kind of a point in the, in the Spider-Man origin story timeline. Um, as the movie will go on to explore, right? That that six month sweet spot where you're feeling good and on top of your game mm -hmm. is usually the, the point where the canon event occurs. Right. Um, really, really interesting to see, um, Gwen tell the story of her canon event and then uh, Pavitter I thought uh, Spider-Man India was like the coolest example of like this this counter story to Miles 
who comes in at his six month point, and so does Pavitter, who comes in at his six month point, and he's feeling great. Right. He's feeling on top of the world. Everything's awesome. And uh, when Miles saved him, like saved saved his canon event from happening, like you sort of had this sense, like, oh, this is going to have a ripple effect, like. Because I almost knew instantly Pavitter comes on screen and he's so happy and he's so confident. And it's like, oh, this guy hasn't had the tragic thing happen yet. Right. Like, I don't think I don't think at that point, I don't think the show had introduced the movie had introduced the idea of canon events. But everything about Pavitter was like, oh, he needs to be taken down a notch. Like something's going to break his heart any minute now. And like they almost established that dramatic irony just by showing us an incredibly happy Spider-Man. Right. Yeah. Right? Yes, for sure. They they definitely set the stage for, like you said, that idea that um, they're going to be these big key pivot moments within um, every Spider-Man story, which is really a meta commentary on the hero's journey, right? That there's going to be these moments in every hero's story where there's going to be ups and there are going to be downs and you can't be riding high all the time um, and things are going to happen. The question is just how you know what to it's, I mean, it is a meta commentary on the hero's journey, and you're right. And it's even more specific than that. It's a meta commentary on the journey of a spider hero, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like people talk about Peter Parker and what does it take to do a Peter Parker story? And the answer is usually like, you know, the tragedy that comes with great power, great responsibility. And at this point, we've seen that story played over and over and over again in a meta way. Right. These Spider-Verse films not only say, hey, we don't need to do a Peter Parker story. You know, Miles literally says, like, I'm going to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. Like, that's like the line from this film is I'm going to do my own thing. But also, I think there's a there's a there's a a bigger way in which it's a meta commentary on how do you break cycles of generational trauma? How do you actually have an impact in somebody else's life? Like. Is it is it is it okay to just let tragedy happen? Like at what where's the line between being a hero and saying, well, this is just part of life? And isn't a hero somebody who would look at that and say, well, can't we can't we make this better? And so there's so many interesting meta layers. I don't know if you want to take that somewhere, pull one of those threads, but um I think it's really impressive how this Miles story attacks that idea of does trauma have to happen not only from a Spider-Man lens, but from a bigger generational lens. There's the racial aspect as well, where where Miles is a black hero and like what's the what are the consequences of that and and how is that significant? And um there's just so much going on that I'm I'm so impressed by. Well, I think also a big part of the conversation the movie um is trying to have is about is around this idea of uh, legacy heroes as well and what it means to uh, take on the mantle of a hero that we've already that we've kind of seen before but a new take a different take a different spin and so um, the movie's playing with like how different can a spider-man be while still be spider-man and what is the breaking point between um, a person who's spider-man or just a crazy guy in a spider suit. And uh, with the villain, you know, that's the line that he's walking, right? Is, or not the villain, the, the antagonist, I guess I should say. I think Miguel's the villain. You'd say that? Yeah. He starts off... He's got vampire teeth and, and nasty claws. <laughs> <laughs> For 
For sure. And there, you know, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, he starts off like being where, oh, we're not quite sure how to feel about him. And then, well, maybe he's doing things for the right reasons. And then, oh, wait, no, he actually is um, off his kilter. Right. And that's kind of the the ultimate realization is this this guy is not who he thought he was. He's not living up to the Spider-Man mantle. Like he's crossed that yeah. threshold from being uh, a hero, a Spider-Man hero, and a guy in a spider suit who's doing crazy shit. Yeah. yeah. And well, there's a lot of interesting parallels in that too. You know, as far as Miguel being the villain is concerned, one of the interesting things I had pointed out to me, I you know, it was probably on Twitter or TikTok or something, was that that scene, you know, where Miles is um, riding the train and he's pinned against the wall of, of the train and they're all trying to chase him up. Mm-hmm. And Miguel finally gets him. And there's this moment where Miguel's claw comes right for him. Mm-hmm. And right at that frame, uh, his claw perfectly matches the shape of the Prowler claw from that moment right before he grabs Miles on the rooftop in Aunt May's neighborhood in in Into the Spider-Verse. Mm, yeah. And it's like the exact same finger position and everything. At which point, Miles then glitches. And when Miles glitches, one of the frames of him glitching is him in that in that fan merch spider suit mm-hmm. that he wore for like the first half of the first film. Right. <laughs> and so there's this really interesting parallel as far as like Miles having this this perspective shift, somebody coming after him who's going to say, hey, no, you need to do this my way. And, hi- and then him who's going to take a stand and either have this emotional reveal, mm-hmm. in which case he's going to show Uncle Aaron who he is. Or with Miguel, where he's going to say, "I reject all of this, and I'm going to I'm going to take my own, make my own path." Such an interesting parallel, but to me, even more cements that Miguel does have sort of a, I mean, maybe antagonistic, but I mean, it's a villainous role because a villain is somebody who says, "My way is the way," right? Right? Like a villain is somebody who says, "I'm right no matter what," and and so that's you know that's Thanos, right? That's Loki. That's that's Ronan. That's all these Marvel villains we've seen before. That's Doctor Octopus. It's 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 Miguel O'Hara in this case. Like I'm right no matter what. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. And I guess ultimately, you know, we'll see how the third movie decides to wrap everything up and put all these uh characters in their place. Um. But it is interesting how um they're setting it up as the main threat is um. Uh, almost a battle for Spider-Man's soul. Um, and I don't necessarily mean yeah. Miles's soul. I really do mean Spider-Man, the meta character of what Spider-Man, who Spider-Man is and what he represents. Um, you know, that's what was going on. And uh, we know our Miles is a hero, but I think it's also super important that we see um, uh, Earth-42 Miles as a villain. Um, yeah. And so... Uh, you know, that sort of encompasses this ancient idea that inside all of us are, uh, you know, as a duality, you know, there's a hero and a villain inside all of us. And, yeah. and like all these good uh, heroic stories, like we're, it, we're externalizing the conflicts, um, you know, that the characters are also feeling internally, you know, Spider-Man has now said, I am, or sorry, Miles is saying, I'm, you know, all of these Spider-Men, all these orderly Spider-Men are telling me I need to be a certain way. And now they're saying, well, I actually need to not exist because I'm, I'm mm. my, my mere existence is enough to disrupt um, harmony. 
Um, so I've thrown that away. But by throwing that away, he's also in- introduced a new element of chaos. Now there's a there's a spider civil war, basically, um, that's brewing, <laughs> right? That's how we're setting it up. And, uh, you know, what are the consequences that going to be? And then the first real thing that's that Miles has to confront after he he throws away or he escapes the legacy of Spider-Man is the, a mirror of himself. That's an, that's a dark mirror. And he has a choice basically. Is he, yeah. he who is he going to become? Uh, is he, you know, where, where is his soul? Well, that's the, I mean, you're right. That is the biggest question. Like, and, and, and I'm sure the third film is going to address it in some really interesting ways and also some unexpected ways. But right now, if you were going to ask me, like, what do I think the second film is setting up? I think the answer is that the third film is going to set up Miles to be a transformative type of chaos instead of a destructive type of chaos. Sure. And I think Miguel is going to have to realize he's, he's either going to die, you know, die being wrong, mm-hmm. or, you know, he's going to be transformed by Miles in the same way that Gwen Stacy and Peter B. Parker and Penny Parker and Spider-Noir and Spider-Ham were all transformed by Miles, mm-hmm. which is that they were inspired by his courage and his growth and his ability to act heroically despite his chaotic circumstances, despite his anomalous nature, that he was able to step into a role that he shouldn't have been able to step into in the first place, right? Like that's the Miles Morales story is I shouldn't be Spider-Man, but I am anyway and not only am I going to be Spider-Man, but I'm going to help all these other Spider-Men reimagine who it is they're supposed to be for the better. And I think that's a that I mean in a meta way, I think that addresses the entire Miles Morales critique. Like if you follow the butterfly effect, butterfly effect all the way back to Donald Glover, mm-hmm. right? Who everybody was like, "Oh, we, a black man should never be Spider-Man." Like he was getting literal hate comments and death threats in his inbox. Man. Like now to, 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 to have these creators make millions and millions of dollars off of this black Spider-Man who comes out and says, I'm going to do my own thing. And not only is it going to be amazing, but it's going to radicalize the way people think about Spider-Man for the next 20 years. I'm just saying, probably that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, it's incredible. It's a great story, right? And it's a great story in a meta way. And it also works in the Spider-Verse movies. Like, the first movie was excellent on its own as an origin story. This movie, I think, unexpected. I didn't. I didn't know how it could, but unexpectedly, it has somehow made the first one even better. And there's some little tie-ins that do that, but there's some big tie-ins that do it too. And so I just, I don't know. I, I think it works in so many ways. It does, and I, I, I really don't want to undersell, um, you know, just what a like a success this movie is in terms of like the the narrative and the ideas and the characters and i mean the art um which we i definitely want to get into um yeah but i think where you and i are are differing is that while i definitely enjoyed this movie um i think there are a lot of things that that also keep this movie from being as impactful for me as the first um into the spider-verse film and yeah a, a lot of that has to do with its, uh, you know, middle child uh, nature that it is setting up, you know, a sequel. It is a sequel. It is setting up a sequel, 
and theoretically a conclusion of uh, the 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 next one will be the conclusion of a trilogy um or at least the conclusion of a it'll give us a closed loop uh, a full story um and well who knows maybe it'll be part two part one. right part two part one who knows i mean you know if we we consider it the business side of things obviously uh spider-verse as long as it's selling well the the people on the business side of things are going to want to see more of it um no we need to blindfold the sony executives <laughs> let them know it's not good don't watch it it's terrible, it's terrible. we don't pay attention right we just need to keep the fans alive long enough for one more movie um, oh but I think actually this movie was for me, a big criticism. If we want to go into my criticisms of the film is I did feel like it was a good 20 minutes too long. Um, the first spider verse film was a svelte one hour and 40 minutes. It came in, it told a fantastic story in a, uh, on a compact uh, time frame, and it gave us so much character development, and gave us such a you know it, it burst open the doors of what what uh, animation uh, could look like, uh, Hollywood animation, CG animation, what that could look like uh, moving forward. Um, yeah, and then the second film, to the point where you have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Puss in Boots: The Last Wish, which are all mirroring this style. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, taking aspects of it or just uh, in some cases just straight up uh you know uh copying a lot of it um and for the better like i'm i'm done with um the disney pixar dreamworks house style um of big eyes and round features and um you know uh, uh put it well technology i mean technology has evolved too yeah you know, for Pixar to develop that style, it was mostly based on the limitations of the technology that was available at the time. Yeah. But it's also embarrassing now. It's embarrassing they didn't break out sooner. You know, they've been driving towards hyper-realism. Anyway. Right. To, you were saying. Yeah. Um, but this movie, I felt like it, it, um, it did feel like the, um, there wasn't enough, uh, things are, to justify its runtime. And by that, I mean, um, especially since it's a middle part of a trilogy, um, I feel like they could definitely have cut down um, on a lot of sequences that maybe run too long um, where the artists just really wanted to, to put as many uh, colorful frames as possible. And while they are gorgeous in the moment, I think they harm the, uh, the overall pacing and story. Uh, case in point for me. Well, with, I mean, without knowing what happens in Beyond the Spider Verse, what would you what would you cut to make that adjustment? Like, are you talking about like the Gwen Stacy stuff? Are you talking about the spider chase? Like, what are you thinking of when you say beautiful frames? Like, so I think to uh, shrink the scale a little bit to kind of highlight what I'm talking about, um, the opening action sequence against um, the Renaissance Vulture is a visually sumptuous, sumptuous, gorgeous sequence, but it is very long. And it really, if you look at that scene and that sequence, it really only accomplishes a handful of things. It says that the, that the, the rip in the, you know, the walls between universes are starting to collapse. Um, there are more Spider-Men than we've, than we've seen before. Um, at their core, they are motivated by the same motivation, which is, to save people and to be heroes. 
even Miguel, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, because he still wants to tr- like try to save the crowd from the falling helicopter and all these other things. Um, okay. That we're going to see new art styles, which is great. Um, and then, yeah. of course, to set up the drama where, um, you know, Gwen Stacy is going to be, um, you know, have her father as a cop point her, his gun at her and tell her to put her hands in the air. Um, and those are all really important sequences. But then there's just. Well, well, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, they're all really important sequences. Right. But there's a lot of action that happens in between that is just okay. like extra action sequences that really could have just been handled in a, in, you know, a few frames, a few shots. It didn't have to be this, you know, extended 10-minute action sequence. It could have yeah. easily been done in in half the time, I believe. Um, and a lot of yeah, I mean, maybe I just don't, maybe I just don't remember what you're talking about because I I felt like it, I felt like it, I didn't, I didn't experience any slowness there. Well, it just it it well, it was the thing. It was almost the opposite of slowness. It was the fact that we were getting a lot of uh, high high octane action sequences that exist with for no other purpose than to have an high octane action sequence. Because like the vulture character, we don't see him anymore. Like he's not he's not any part that's of the story. True. We don't. It's cool that he's a Renaissance vulture character. Like that's a neat character to see. <laughs> but there's a lot of like little things that he does with like his little you know uh, grenades and extended you know action sequences of like as he's flying around and they're slinging they're slinging their spider webs at him and trying to get him wrapped up and then he breaks out and then he throws yeah. another grenade and and then a building falls okay. and it's just it's a lot of sequences that I feel like. Um, um you could have been you know what though, out. you know what it does you know as you're describing it one thing i just realized that it also does which i think is important is establish that miguel is not significantly more effective than any other spider person in combat yeah yeah like miguel shows up and you get this feeling like oh everything's gonna be fine he's gonna take care of it and he can't right he has to and then they need Jessica and then ultimately Gwen is the one who saves the day but Miguel still thinks he's better than everybody else yeah so I mean honestly the more you talk about it the more you're convincing me that that's a really important scene and it needs to stay in well I'm not saying that the scene needs to be cut I'm saying it needs to be trimmed yeah. uh that's the thing yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff um that happens in that scene that is just done in my opinion and I felt this while I was watching the film is it's just done to have cool yeah. moments and cool moments are important, but if that's your only reason for being there, um, to give us another sequence of another slow motion grenade exploding and causing a bunch of other crazy um, sequences to happen with no I mean, external stakes. Star Wars Isn't Star Wars dogfights in space? Isn't that all Star Wars is? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that... I also feel like uh, uh, some of the Star Wars movies... Uh, where their action sequences maybe go on for for too long. I feel like when it comes to this film, especially um, comparing it to the first one, that as I said, such a such a a tight movie. Um, I felt like the creators, um, yeah. there were there were a lot of darlings that they needed to kill, and so for that, yeah. for for non writers, non artists, the phrase. Uh, kill your darlings is this um, this idea that basically 
you uh, artists and creators can get super attached to a really clever idea or character or scene or sequence or shot. Um, and they spend so much energy and time on it um, because they love it so much. But when the full, full product starts, gets developed in its entirety, um, it maybe doesn't have as much importance to the overall work um, that, uh, that as the, as it develops, it's, it's no longer needed anymore, but you don't want to let it go because, oh man, you've spent so much energy on it. It's such a cool scene. It looks so pretty. Why can't I keep this? And it's like, well, for the larger story, you know, pacing, um, take, uh, taking attention away from other, maybe more important scenes. And I feel like this movie had a lot of that. And uh, part of that, I think also is what happens when, when you have really, really creative people and you give them a big blank check that after they do something really successful and they, they are more likely to get attached to create the things that they love to the point where if they don't have the opposite tension, they maybe create too much of it. I think they will. And you're singing, you're singing my song right now. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're singing my song. I mean, this is the thing that I say every time a movie comes out is I'm always like, well, they either gave him too much money or they didn't give him enough money or the production company wanted this or it felt like the company wanted that or the studio just wants to make a sequel so they don't really care about story. Like that's that's my song. I, I, I'm i practically dancing right now. <laughs> but like as much as it pains me to say it, I think this one could have been a lot worse. Like going sure. into Across the Spider-Verse, I was so deeply afraid that exactly what you just described is all that it was going to be. Mm. Like they wrote him a blank check and they did whatever they wanted and because there was no pressure to deliver, there was less, you know, visionary tightness across the project and, or less tightness of vision across the project and more chaos and more people doing what they wanted. And even though I appreciate that you're looking at it with a microscope and trying to say, well, these two, you know, these two or three scenes were still a little bit too much. I thought it was the perfect amount. I thought it was, a, I mean, why shouldn't they take a victory lap? They just reinvented all of animated films for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. Like they just reinvented what it means to make a great animated superhero film. They reinvented the whole idea of what a Spider-Man story is. It's, it's one of my top four films of all times into the Spider-Verse is like probably will be for a long time. It's one of your favorite. It's, I think it is your favorite comic book movie. Isn't just it? about, I, it's a tough line because, oh man, that would be a really a tough choice, but it's definitely a, uh, in the top three, no doubt. Right. Yeah. So why, so why shouldn't those people get to throw in a little bit extra? You know, I will gladly give them an extra 20 minutes. I'll gladly give them an extra 40 and I'm going to give them an extra two hours when beyond the spider verse comes out mm -hmm. and I'm going to go see it twice. Probably. Right. So I think you're right that there is that risk and there is that danger, but I thought it delivered. I thought every second was, was absolutely precious and i did not want it to be over when it was over even though i did feel that it you know in the last 30 20 minutes i was like okay where are they going like i'm a little tired i kind of need to pee like even though i felt that mm. i was still along for the ride like why would i like this is a really cool moment in filmmaking history animated filmmaking history like why would i why would i ask them not to not to do that if they get a chance to and who knows i mean to to extend your kill your darlings metaphor you know, the more morbid version is kill your babies. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that that Phil Lord and Peter Ramsey and whoever else worked on this project, I'm sure they've got a dumpster full mm. of babies <laughs> somewhere, which is just a terrible image. <laughs> but I'm sure that there's a burning dumpster full of babies in the in some Sony backlot right now. 
And uh, and and if a couple things made it through, then some animator probably fought really hard to make it happen. And how dare you? How Daniel? dare I? How dare you? Being the contrary, and I am. Yeah, let me. Can I just open this up a little mm-hmm. bit? The thing that's really interesting about the Gwen Stacy opening scene to me is not the action. It's not even you know Miguel isn't as good of a Spider Man as as everybody thinks he's going to be. What's really interesting to me is this is a question: is Do you think Peter Parker's death? on Gwen Stacy's Earth is is Gwen's canon event or do you think it's her conflict with her father and big caveat maybe it's both and beyond the Spider-Verse is going to establish that there are canon events and then maybe there are like divergence events Mm -hmm. and that's what Miles helps people generate right like Peter B. Parker has made a Mm -hmm. Gwen Stacy makes up with her father so I don't know what do you think about this whole canon event thing so before I answer that, I feel like I need to uh, make sure that I have an escape hatch. And by that, I want to say, <laughs> as much as I spent the last 10 minutes sort of uh, ragging on the film for running too long, for being a bit too much, um, or to quote um, one of my favorite uh, critics of all time, Roger Ebert, too much of a muchness, as he likes to say, <laughs> um, I really want to say that uh, the film, well, the movie was great. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, and you're yeah. right. At the end of the day, like, why not have a victory lap? Why not s- shove as much like crazy cool stuff in it as possible? As long as it's visually interesting and exciting, and as long as they've still got a story that they're telling that that resonates, which I believe that they do. Like, why not? I mean, Infinity War had a very similar um hurdle right and then you could say infinity war uh was way too bloated right infinity war was a little infinity war was a little long yeah it was a little long but again it was like a lot of it was like i'm here for it because this is the second part that is going to con- uh leading up to the conclusion of a of a decade long uh movie series so yeah. why not have a victory yeah. lap so all that is completely valid and i believe those two things can be true they've earned it they've earned their big Victory lap. It's still visually interesting, exciting, and fun to watch. But I still hold my point that the movie could have been tighter as a standalone film if it had been if it had trimmed the fat and killed a few more of its stuff. Okay. So I just feel like I like the parenthetic. That. Yeah. yeah. You know, I would have brought as a standalone film. As a standalone film. Now to your question. Well, it's not a standalone film, Daniel. It's the middle part of a trilogy. So exactly, exactly. Um, but to your point, the first one does work as a standalone film and is is barely a sequel. Mm-hmm. Or it barely sets up a sequel. Barely, yeah. Like the first one cl- opens and closes and then it's just like that in credit scene where they tease there might be a sequel. So to your point, the first, there's nothing about the first one that requires a sequel. Right. So so that's why I think Across the Spider-Verse has to fight so hard to prove that it it needs to exist. I think that's why it opens with Gwen. I think that's why it establishes six-month miles. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. going on there. Uh, to, but anyway, yeah, to answer your question about... Point. I mean, yeah, for sure. And to answer your question about canon, um, I feel like... Yeah, Gwen Stacy's canon event. Which one is Yeah, that? I think it's both. And so having consumed a lot of multiverse time travel media in my many right. years on this uh, Earth, planet Earth, um the the biggest parallel that I can think of to this type of story, besides Loki, right, and its take on multiverse, 
um, and canon events and things like that um, is Doctor Who and their idea of like single moments in time that can never be changed, like real like pivotal moments, like doc- the doctor fixed can, points, yeah, right? fixed points in time. Yeah. But the doctor can uh, zip around um, and change all sorts of crazy history. There can be a dinosaur uh, stomping around London. Right. But there are certain things that have to happen. Right. Um, or the entire like timeline or a meaning of existence falls apart. Right. And yeah. that's the case that um, that Miguel is making. Right. Is that there are these key points. And if they shatter the uh, the multiverse falls apart, um, it just leads to dark universes in all cases or or literally universes that are that are cosmically falling apart. Um, and so, of course, Miles rejecting that he's going to do his own thing that he's going to do that, I think is. I think what that shows is that Miguel has uh, externalized the his failure and basically said, well, because I couldn't make it happen. Yes. And that that means nobody can make it happen. And so I think the whole That's why he's a villain. That's why he's a villain. And so I think the whole canon thing is to, to pardon my French is a crock of shit. Like I think that's what yeah. the film is the third one is going to show us is that this whole construct of canon events and semi-canon events and all that other stuff that it at the end of the day, um like if you are be fulfilling the legacy of Spider-Man in in heroism and doing the right thing and being the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, um, it's not about powers. It's not about Uncle Ben dying. It's not about those other yeah. things as well. Um, and that no matter what, if you're if you're going to go through life, especially if you're going to uh, attempt a heroic life, sac- you're going to need to make sacrifices. Bad things are going to happen. How you choose to deal with them is just going to define your role as a hero and as a person. Um, and so you can't just say, well, because bad things happen, bad things, specific bad things have to happen or heroes can't be created is absurd. But that's what Miguel was trying to say. Yeah. It's like Miles is going to have, well, it's also, but it doesn't have to be. The I same. mean, I think it's also a story about internalizing you, how people internalize their own traumas and how people internalize their own narratives, mm-hmm. you know, because for Miguel to say, well, this terrible thing happened to me. And I tried to fix it and it didn't work. So this must just be the fate of all spider people. And I am the template for spider people. Like, like you're right. Like by saying I'm the, he's trying to, trying to externalize his own individual experience and say this, this must apply to everybody else. Like that's, that's the mistake. And, um, and I think it's also the, the truth of what happens to people when something really terrible happens to them and they cannot process it. Mm-hmm. They 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 find themselves in a spot where they have to believe, well, okay, this must just be the way life works. Because otherwise, if it isn't, then this is really tragic and I have to process that in a different kind of a way. Um, you know, I must be really unlucky. Like that's almost harder mm-hmm. um, than saying, you know, tragic stuff happens to everybody. Yeah. And um Well, and and to to quote a trite phrase, you know, um those who um fail to read history are doomed to repeat it right there's this there's this idea that basically if if the spider-men are sort of segmented into their own multiverses without interconnectedness then a lot of the same story beats are going to happen over and over again it's almost inevitable 
But as the multiverse is able to communicate with each other, what Miguel learned by seeing all the multiverses is, well, there are certain things that have to happen. If they don't happen, bad things are going to happen. What he fails to learn is, it's like he read a history book and then said, oh, well, this is what happened in history. Therefore, that's how the future is going to look. Uh, we're all doomed, yeah. right? But his read should have been, just because this has happened in the past, does it mean it means that this is an opportunity to learn and to shape ourselves. And Miguel's yeah. big like personal hurdle is he is routinely his failure is he fails to learn from his own mistakes. He thinks he can solo yes. everything and that he can yes. do everything by himself. And which is why that first scene is important, by the way, it's one of the reasons it is. It is. And the scene itself is important for sure for that reason, because like it helps set the tone for he 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 thinks he can do it all. He doesn't need Gwen's help. Yeah. And he only yeah. begrudgingly asks for Jessica's help because he is, yeah. his hand is forced. Yeah. Um, and that's the big, that's the, you know, one, one of the big messages that I think they're, they're trying to answer and develop. And Miles is trying to answer. That's the other way that I think it's, I, that's the other way that I think it's a generational trauma story too, because for Miguel O'Hara to look and say, this is what's happened before, therefore this is what must happen again, is sort of the story of um, people who have to break out of those traumas, like a personal trauma, a family trauma, if you have like a, um, you know, if there's a racial or gender aspect where you overcome some kind of oppression to, to, to belong somewhere where you don't feel like you should belong. Like, I think all those, those aspects are layered in. And on top of that... Um, you know, there's this idea that 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 Miles somehow, you know, because Miles is a young, half Puerto Rican, half black kid growing up in New York City. Like that is his story. Even if he wasn't Spider Man, that would be his story. And you know, like when they do the interview with the school counselor or the advisor who's trying to help him pick do his college path, like that sort of hits that on the head. Like this is his identity. Like he is trying to break out. He is trying to grow beyond. You know, Miles's parents who don't know anything about Spider-Man talk to Miles about this idea of growing beyond or rising above mm -hmm. or being better than they were. Like they're not speaking to him as Spider-Man. You know, when we, when we have those moments, we hear those as though they're Spider-Man, you know, motivational messages. Oh, here's how you could be a better Spider-Man, but actually like, Oh, the writers are winking at us, but actually they're about Miles mm -hmm. and Miles's individual identity as a, as a young black Puerto Rican kid in society. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another really important part of the narrative too. You know, Miguel on one hand who says, this is the way things have always been and things have to stay this way. And then you have Rio and um, what's Miles' dad's name? I can't remember. You have Miles' parents yeah, yeah. who say, we, we, we believe that you can grow beyond. And even though we don't understand it, we want it for mm -hmm. you. And that's the, uh, those are the opposite perspectives, I think, that, that the show balances. And I think that's a really important um, aspect of the story in a, in a meta way. Right. Too. Well, and it, it, Again, uh, it's also um, goes back to this, like, I mean, it is a coming of age story. You know, we've got a 15 year old Miles and the first movie, like the puberty parallels were were very overt. And that's always yeah. like, honestly, that's been Peter Parker's historical like lens that it's often seen through is you're going to your body's going to start going through changes, Peter. You know, and we, we, there's a wink and a nod that it's like, we're, we're talking about spider powers, but we're also talking about, um, what it means to be a kid and growing up, it, becoming an adolescent 
and being in that weird in between space between like wanting to be free and and uh, have fun, but at the same time starting to like go come into the world and need to take responsibility and find your place in life and society, um, and also make a mark for yourself. Um, and so uh, developing that through all of these different ways and showing that Miles has so many different role models to pick from, some of them good and some of them bad. Um, and it's such an important part of his de- continuing development uh, as a character as he, um, you know, comes of age, you know. And yeah, I'd say... I think you're totally right. I, I feel like another thing that I think one of the reasons why this movie maybe didn't hit as many highs for me is I really liked... Uh, Peter B. Parker a lot in the first movie. I've always kind of have been a sucker for these um, characters who've kind of been beat down by life, um, who've had hardship, uh, but at the same same time, a lot of it is also self inflicted wounds, right? Like that, as these characters who are maybe in the middle part of their lives um, uh, learn to sort of break away and become their own uh, heroes and find their role. Um, or not like there's, I've always been a sucker for those types of characters and Mm -hmm. for him to get such a kind of a small role in this film and like, they're setting him up, like he's going to be bigger in the next film. But I guess I, I felt like, I I feel like he could have, I was frustrated with him. I felt like he could have connected with, with miles more. And I felt like his, his siding with Miguel um, as strongly as he did, felt a little out of character, in, considering the the growth and change that his character had um, over the first well, film. I, considering the growth and change that his character had, I think is is the important part here. I think across the Spider Verse leaves Peter B. You know where we leave Peter B. Parker in into the Spider Verse is he's on the cusp of a change. He's on the cusp of a personal breakthrough and he's going to go back a changed man. And he does. We see him, you know, appear with the flowers and and it's implied that they make that Mm -hmm. right. I think it was probably really important for Across the Spider-Verse that they didn't undermine that immediately. Not only because, you know, they did so much work for you to love what happened to Peter B. Parker in the first film, but also because he is a father now and he's a husband in a way that he wasn't a husband before. And so your sense of responsibility changes, your sense of, of how you fall into line or don't choose to step out of line changes, I think, when you when you go through those experiences. And so I thought it was very true to form that Peter B. Parker, who we did know as sort of a natural lazy bones, mm-hmm. would just sort of fall in line and say, yeah, sure, Miguel, I'll be part of your thing. Mm-hmm. But sort of in the background is kind of he's wearing, thinking about the kid and taking care of his own kid. He's wearing a bath. Kind of watching to see what's going to happen. Yeah, wearing the bathrobe still. Right. That see that felt very Peter B. Parker to me that he's going to join up, but he's still going to be kind of an obnoxious. I mean, he's going to be a guy wearing sweatpants in the middle of right. it. Right. In this case, he's a guy wearing a bathrobe in the middle of it. Like, like that's still Peter B. Parker. But it's a Peter B. Parker. Don't forget who has been changed by Miles Morales, and that's key because I think Beyond the Spider Verse is going to is going to conclude this idea that. Hey, this whole canon events idea is, as you said, a crock of shit. And actually, not only can people change their own, you know, destinies, but they can help inspire other people to change their destinies. And that's why 
we watch Gwen go through this experience with her father. And Peter B. Parker, you know, it, it come, gets to be a father because of Miles. Like he even says it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I don't think they could have undermined that. I don't think they could have made Peter a lazy slob again because it would have undermined everything that the first film did. And it, it probably won't lead us to the conclusion that I think Beyond the Spider-Verse is trying to go to. So even though you're right, and I think Peter B. Parker was really fun and and funny. I mean, he was the comedic relief, mm-hmm. right, for that movie. Um, which maybe is a weak point is there's not a lot of comedic relief in Across the Spider-Verse. Um, uh, well, the, the spot does some of yeah. it, right? The spot does some of it and Gwen and Miles do most of it. And um, But but I don't know. I think it's important that he stayed changed. I think it's important that it was a different Peter B. Parker because it, it's not the same Peter B. Parker. That's like critical to the thesis is that you can change your, you know, you can change your Spider-Man destiny or more specifically, Miles Morales can alter the course of of a spider-man's destiny mm-hmm. like that's the that's the thing they're setting up I think. yeah yeah and but i did i did miss him too i missed the the hearty burger breakfast mm-hmm. and the you're not gonna not gonna swing on a on a full stomach and right and the wearing of the sweatpants and you know i i, I agree with you um i guess i just selfishly wanted in a movie that had so much uh that was giving so much to in scenes where I felt like they could have been cut, I selfishly wanted more Peter B. Parker. So uh, I yeah. even if it was, <laughs> you know, just. But the moments that they did have with him, like I really like the moment where he kind of um, he because he knows Miles so well, he ends up catching up with Miles in a way that the other Spider-Men don't, and they have a really good heart to heart. I really love that moment where he's like, "You changed me, Miles." You know. Like you, you, I wanted to have a kid because I wanted the kid to be like you. And like, that's such a great moment and such a sweet moment. Um, yeah. And so I so love- you're not saying that he should have been more like the first movie. You're just saying you wanted more of him. I wanted more of him. And I didn't, I didn't like that he was kind of, sycophantic is too strong of a word, but he, like you said, he, he and this probably does come from his involvement of a character that like he has a kid, he has- like he doesn't want to step out of line because that could put his kid at risk, could put his timeline or his universe at risk. Um, yeah, you know. So like that is, is isn't true. it sort of implied that like Gwen and Peter B only join up because they want to maybe get in touch with Miles again? Well, Gwen, like I think the main reason is because she did she wanted to run away from the tragedy that had befallen her universe. Right, yeah. That she had confronted her father and her uh, with her true identity, and her father had, re- in her mind, rejected her identity and only saw her as a criminal. Yeah. And so, rather than like letting that conflict play out, she ran away, and she she's been running. She this is all just a distraction from the fact that like you know she doesn't want to return home and try to make things right because right, right, she's right. afraid it won't be right. And then what she but learned. There was some moment where. Good. Oh, go ahead. Well, and then what she learns when uh, mentoring under Jessica and Miguel is that that maybe that it's inevitable, right? That the things are going to go badly for her father, for, between her and her father, and um, and that her father could actually die as a result of her being in her own universe, right? And so, like, it's kind of a double whammy there. So she's she's kind of rationally using that as an excuse to not go back. I think that's her main motivation. I don't think 
I think she wanted to see Miles for sure. And like, you know, there's she goes when she has to go to that universe, she makes a detour to Miles for that reason. But uh, I think yeah. her main motivation was she didn't want to go home. Yeah. yeah. So. And I'm trying to remember how she's forced to go home. Is it because of because of her screw up with Miles that she's forced to go home? Yeah, basically Miguel takes her her band and says, "You're, yeah. um, I don't, we have, I've had enough of you. you you're not yeah. part of the Spider Team or whatever anymore." And then uh, punk rock uh, Spider Man gives um, he, sneaks a bracelet in her reality, um, which is then well, not till way later. Yeah, but not yeah. till way later, but yeah. Well, I specifically, because I was trying to remember, you know, if the film is going to set up this idea that Miles has the capacity to change the destiny of another spider person, like he was able to give Peter B the inspiration he needed to reunite with his family and 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 have a kid. Mm. He was able to give Gwen the inspiration she needed to um, soldier on and potentially repair the relationship with her father. Like, like, I'm wondering if that is a story point as well. Like she went and met Miles. Mm after meeting miles like she had to go home but if she hadn't met miles how would that have turned out differently i don't know maybe that's a discredit to gwen's individual arc to say that it's all on miles but um but i don't know i guess we'll have to see beyond the spider-verse to see but that that feels like what they're really setting up for me because miles also uh transforms pavitter's life mm -hmm. right like because miles saved captain singh and i don't remember his girlfriend's name but because he saved the two of right. them he effectively paved the way for Pavitter to be a happy heroic Spider-Man for the rest of forever, potentially. potentially. Right. Or Miguel's belief that he's doomed uh, Pavitter's um, uh, universe to um, to hell, you know, if that plays out. Because that's what they imply, right? That yeah. all these other Spider-Men have to yeah. go and like start patching up the spots, black hole, the hole. Right. But it's not... So that's going to be the... Okay. But yeah, but I, I think that you know, we don't see any signs of like the glitching happening, right? It's not like a fundamental constant of the universe. It's just, well, a big battle happened and and Spot did it, right? I don't think it was caused because, you know, Miles saved someone. I think that's that's yes. Miguel yeah. again manipulating the scene and being like, right. you you had the audacity to get in the middle and and screw things up. Uh yeah, no, Miles literally says it was the spot. That was the spot. Right. And Miguel doesn't want to hear right. it. He doesn't want to hear it. He thinks that it's just further evidence that, and you know, a part of this, you know, I think sometimes when, when, when you enter a sort of a mentorship role in life, um, that is a balance you kind of have to make whenever you're mentoring someone is that like people who are new to something that you're trying to teach them, they're going to, they're going to mess up. They're going to make mistakes and you want to make sure that they don't make a mistake that could harm them. But you want to make sure at the same time that they are, they feel the freedom to try and to fail. And if they don't, then they'll lose um, a key element of what um, is whatever it is you're trying to teach them. Uh, and um, Miguel is that kind of um, harder mentor where he's like, no, 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 you have to do things exactly the way that I do them or you're, or you're doomed. See, I would take it even farther and I would say Miguel's not interested in mentoring Miles at all. If, you know, Miguel is interested in erasing Miles. For sure. And that's kind of like putting him back in his own little universe and letting him sit there and not disturb anybody else's well. Right. He doesn't even, like you said, yeah, he doesn't even want to uh, mentor him. He's just like, you need to just get out of the way. 
that yeah. you're out of all the spider verses or out of all the multiverses you're the only one the only one that we does that doesn't get a bracelet that doesn't get to be part of this super special club you got you got to be alone you got to be by yourself and you can't be part yeah. of this yeah i just don't know i just don't know what they're gonna do i don't know if miguel is going to die believing that he was right in some you know some accident or incidental or if miguel is going to realize that the hole in 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 Pavitter's universe was caused by the spot and if miles really was as terrible of an anomaly then why is his universe still holding fine right. you know what i mean like like I, I don't know if he's going to connect the dots or if he's going to die being wrong. But you know what I do think is that fundamentally a Spider-Man story is a story of redemption. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Miles has the power to change everybody else's spider destiny, then why couldn't he change Miguel's? So maybe that's the, maybe that's the big conclusion is they, they, you know, he's able to uh, help Miguel resolve his traumas, repair his universe. And then, you know, they take down the spot together. I mean, it's almost too perfect, but it's like, if it is going to be the end of a trilogy, like that has to be where they're going with it. Right. Well, and I think we can, I think we can get some clues into how this story is going to develop um, from another multiversal Spider-Man film, which was uh, Far From Home, right? No Way, no way Home. You're right. No Way Home. Sorry. Uh, a No Way Home where there are like... They also kind of establish subtly the idea of canon events, right? The idea that, well, Aunt May was doomed to die because right. that's his Uncle Ben moment. That's, um, yep. and that um, Spider Man will try to redeem heroes and then, but they will die usually by their own hand or by their own malice. Um, right. before they have a chance Doc Ock, Spider-Man 2 Doc Ock, Spider-Man 2 um, and or you know in Green Goblin a little bit not redeemable right. but died of his own mistake basically of his, of his own glider like so and that those Spider-Men saying well look this is just going to happen and then our Peter Parker says it doesn't have to I can save them I can save them all and save them all and, and, and Toby holding the syringe there's that great moment where he's like Gotta save them all, right? Yep. And so he transforms those Spider-Men so that they can transform and um, and give those heroes the... Um, I don't want to say the redemption. Um, I think Doc Ock's the only one who goes through a true re re uh, redemption, but he at least goes through that that acceptance. Allows them to accept that what they what what they did was wrong and to and to seek. Um, but forgiveness and all of that. So I, I hesitate to say salvation, but I, you know what I'm saying? There's just this, the sense of coming at peace with, okay, I did some messed yeah. up things. Um, I don't really have time to make it right, but I can at least accept my place as, you know, instead of just dying well, horribly. And we should wrap this up on across the spider verse and not no way home. Right. But one of the things that I'm realizing that is just so weird about no way home is that, you know, yeah, there's a big battle at the end, but it's not a big we've got to win battle. It's a we've got to we've got to vaccinate these guys battle. Right. And so it it has sort of an underwhelming action arc compared to other films um, for that reason. But of course, it is beautiful in its own way. And 
as you know, as as far as meta points to the Peter Parker narrative go, I don't think you could make a stronger one. It would be difficult to, you know, what they did, what they pulled off was very difficult to do and, and impressive. For sure. For sure. And I am excited I'm, to see the the last part of the Spider-Verse trilogy whenever it comes out next year. Is that right? Yeah. Next year. Um Well, they're they're delaying it again. Yeah, they are. I was really surprised when it ended and it was like January 2024. And I was like, that's like, so like not that right. far. No way. I immediately, I read that date and I was like, no way. okay, so 2026. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the reception I think for this movie has been amazing. So um, if there was any worry that, it, that they weren't going to be able to finish the trilogy, I think that worry is pretty much gone now. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it's do it's doing really well in the box office. I think it's going to continue to do well. I think it's going to do phenomenally, um, on the home market, whether it's home streaming yeah. or whatever, um, because this is a movie I can already tell, um, is going to reward repeat viewings because of how totally. visually dense it is. Um, well, and so. speaking of repeat viewings, have you thought about like, if, like if you watch Spider-Verse again, the first film again, mm -hmm. Having seen this one, there are so many little details, especially Miles Morales's, you know, the night where he gets bit by the spider from Earth 42. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any of no, those? I have any of these parallels? I, I need to go back. Insane. So if you go back and watch the first film, the first most obvious thing that's going to stand out is that the, the spider 42 glitches. Mm. It glitches. And at the time when we're watching it, we just figured it was part of the aesthetic of the movie. Right. Like you just figure, oh, well, that's because it's like this cool art style and the music and it's all popping and, and whatever. Right. But it's actually because it's from a different universe. So it's glitching because it's in the wrong universe. So that's like super cool point number one. Super cool point number two about that night is you remember that scene where he meets the blonde Peter Parker and he's like, whoa, you're like me. And their spider sense like activates. Mm -hmm. When they do that, Miles's colors are purple and green. Mm. Purple, like prowler mm. colors, purple and green. Interesting. And then they shift to blue and red. Interesting. Because they met. Oh, like because they interacted. Interesting. Because they had that connection. And Peter says, I'm going to take care of you. Like they bond. Mm. And now there's that. Now there's that spider legacy connection. That's cool. Because if if Miles had not been bit by a spider and he had been caught up in that chaos, not only would that Peter Parker probably not have died, mm -hmm. but maybe Miles would have taken up the mantle of Prowler that night in some way. Because he admired his uncle so much. He, because he admired his uncle so much. Maybe there would have been some Uncle Aaron reveal mm -hmm. instead of, because if he hadn't been caught up in all the Spider-Man stuff, maybe he would have put the Prowler stuff together. There. Because that was that was the spot where he was with Uncle Aaron, right? Uncle Aaron was like, "Yeah, I did an engineering job down right. here." So, so such that a is cool. That's right to to look to I'm good. Need to read. And then the other really cool detail is is Spider uh, Miles Morales on Earth forty two speaks with more of a Puerto Rican accent mm -hmm. because his dad is dead, and so he was raised mostly by his mother. Yeah, so cool. that's a good detail. Just a little details. Yeah. That's neat. Um, that's I didn't notice that before. But that's really cool. Yeah. Mm. That's awesome. Well, thank you, TikTok, for showing me all of these. For sure, for sure. You know, you, they, they pointed out to you. <laughs> uh, but definitely going to gonna enjoy rewatching both films. Um, and 
Well, definitely. I'll definitely have to watch both films right before I watch the third one whenever it comes out. Mm. Yep. Cool. Okay. We, we've done enough. So. It's a lot. It's impossible. So much. They did such an amazing job and there's so much to talk about. So much good stuff. Uh, agreed. I'd say that uh, we ended on a on a high note, which is go see Across the Spider-Verse. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> um, right. It's better if you see the first film, I believe. But yeah. even if you haven't, just from a pure artistic standpoint, it, it's something you need to see in theaters. It's an achievement. And and it's fundamentally, it's a miracle that it's a miracle the first movie even exists because Sony is so bad at making Spider-Man movies. <laughs> and the fact that the second one exists and is close to equally as good as the first one in most of the important ways is like almost more of a miracle because I don't know. That's my, that that's my big take is it's a miracle. This movie exists again. Right. <laughs> And and it's just how how well it works, given how dense it is. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Bo. This is Daniel. I am Daniel. We'll see you on the next. See you on the next one. <laughs>